Hi, I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. And welcome to episode 15 of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Before we launch into today's episode, we just wanted to give a few shout outs. Normally Bethan does this and normally we do it at the end, but she's making me mix things up a bit this week. So uh, thank you so much to Lisa Wright, Vic Scott, Ben Whitelock, Connor Jackman and Miss J Wren. Thank you guys for reaching out to us. I also wanted to uh, announce the winners of our competition. I think we've been in touch with you guys, but um, well done to the following people. Lorraine Ledwell, Jennifer Barry, Alison Clark and Murderific Podcast. Stickers are winging their way to you as we speak. We'd also like to say a huge thank you to our new Patreon supporter. So hi, Emma. Thank you very much for supporting us. Hope you like all your goodies that are on their way at the moment. Okay, so on to today's episode, and today's episode does represent a departure for us here at Seeing Red. So far, we've covered murder, robbery, stalking, scams, and even an unexplained death. But there is one subject that we are yet to tackle, and that's sexual abuse. Today, I will be telling you the story of one couple's abuse of power in a case that shines a light on how sexual abuse is perceived by some corners of society when the victims are adolescent males. So we don't often give warnings, but I do think it's necessary on this occasion because today's episode will contain descriptions of sexual abuse, although, of course, I have toned them down as much as I can, but they are intrinsic to the narrative of the story. I also think it's important that I just take a minute to signpost a couple of organisations that can provide help and support if you are affected by today's case. If you have been a victim of sexual abuse in childhood and you are now an adult, then you can seek support through the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. They provide a range of services which offer direct support to abuse survivors and they can be contacted on 0808 801 0331 and their lines are open from 10am until 9pm Monday to Thursday and 10am until 6pm on Fridays. If you're a child who is a victim of sexual abuse or indeed any kind of abuse then you can contact Childline on 0800 1111. Their lines are open 24 hours a day. And if you're an adult and you're worried that a child may be at risk of sexual abuse or again any kind of abuse then you can contact the NSPCC on 0808 800 5000 and again their lines are open 24 hours a day. So we will make sure we put details of these organisations in the show notes for today's episode. But finally, if you are listening from abroad and you need support, please go online and look for support groups and organisations that are near to you. Or alternatively, if you are being abused or have concerns that someone is being abused, please contact the police. On to today's case then. So, Tony Wadsworth and Julie Mayer have been described as the Richard and Judy of local radio. Now, if you're under the age of 25 or you're not from these shores, then please allow me to explain. Richard Maidley and his wife Judy Finnegan were the UK's most successful presenting duo of the 80s, 90s and noughties. They reigned supreme for nearly 30 scandal-free years, bar the odd shoplifting allegation, presenting a number of daytime shows together, entertaining students, housewives and the unemployed alike. Tony Wadsworth and his wife Julie Mayer were like a less successful version of Richard and Judy. They dominated the airwaves in the Midlands for around two decades from the early 90s. They presented various radio shows for the BBC, they raised loads of money for charity and they entertained their many listeners with what has been described as their risque banter. To the listener, it seemed like nothing was off limits when it came to their private lives. 
the couple discussed everything from Julie's skin cancer battle to her boob job to Tony's elation at being awarded an honorary doctorate from De Montfort University in Leicester. Even the graphic details of Julie's hysterectomy were shared with their listeners and their listeners loved them for it. Until you got to the point about her hysterectomy, I was thinking, I've never heard of these people and I kind of wish I listened to the radio more because it sounds quite fun. I'm guessing they're not as lovely and fun as they seem on the surface and that's you're probably going to ruin my um, what I think of them. Um, but yeah, they sound quite cool. I, I quite like the idea of listening to them. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think on the face of it, it sounds like they were really interesting, really engaged their listeners and it would have been an interesting show to listen to. But as is often all too familiar in these cases, as you've alluded to, Bethan, behind closed doors, things were not as they appeared and there were certain details this couple were determined to keep from their loyal listeners. Between 1992 and 1996, whilst they outwardly presented an image of respectability, Tony and Julie were leading a double life of depravity, a life that would lead to their fall from grace and subsequent imprisonment nearly 20 years later, as details of their sexual abuse of children were laid bare in the courts for all to see. Julie's flair for showbiz was evident from an early age. She appeared in pantomime while still at school and went on to work at the Leicester Cabaret nightclub as a dancer where she mingled with the local glitterati. Now, I'm not sure how much glitterati there is in Leicester, but um, I just thought I'd put that in for a bit of a laugh. For a time, it seemed like Julie's star was on the rise and it looked like her dreams of fame and fortune may be realised. However, things don't always go the way we want them to and despite her best efforts, Julie's career as a performer never took off. By her early 20s, she had settled into a career as a seamstress. It's not a bad job, to be fair. It's quite a handy thing to know, handy skill to have. I can barely sew a button onto some things. I'm not too sure about that, Bethan, because I'm pretty sure you have replaced a button for me once at work. I actually did, didn't I? Amazing. Is it still on? No, I think I binned all of that not long ago. Okay, so um, yeah, it's not a bad job. She was fairly successful, actually, and it was kind of on the fringes of showbiz because she worked at the National Theatre in London for a time, making costumes for their shows. However, in the mid-80s, Julie accepted a job in her hometown of Leicester at the Haymarket Theatre. By this time, she was a mother to her young son, Simon, and it was reported much later during her trial in 2017 that she was also in quite an abusive relationship. In sharp contrast to Julie's life at this time, Tony, who was 10 years older than Julie, was an established radio presenter. He had been married to his first wife, Karen, for 20 years, and they had two teenage children. In an interview in their local newspaper, the Leicester Mercury, just before their 20th wedding anniversary, Tony and Julie explained how they first met. Describing the chance encounter in 1988, Julie said, Tony popped into the theatre one day to hire a costume for a charity stunt he was organising and came away with more than he bargained for. A kindred spirit, a co-presenter and ultimately a wife. Reflecting back on that first meeting, Julie would later go on to say, I wasn't particularly attracted to Tony at first. I just remember he made me laugh. It was a difficult task finding something to fit, him being a small man. I ended up going into the children's department. I must have talked him to death because he said to me, have you ever thought about going into radio? He invited me to the BBC to have a look around. I guess my curiosity got the better of me. I honestly would not expect someone who has to shop in the children's section for a man to then end up marrying him. That surprises me. It's not what you generally find attractive, is it? But they do say if, it make, if someone makes you laugh, that's the good thing. 
I also think, um, going back to what I said a moment ago, she was in an abusive relationship at that time. So perhaps she saw Tony, 10 years old, was somebody that could uh, be the solution to the difficult situation that she was in. Julie said, he took me out on an interview and set me up with all sorts of equipment to have a go at broadcasting myself. I realised I had a creative side I'd never seen before, and I'll always be grateful to Tony for that. He basically showed me the ropes. In the same interview, Tony joked, I was rather attracted to her backside. Seriously though, I was most attracted to her personality. She's bright and bubbly most of the time. She has that quality something very few people possess. She treads where angels fear to go. Now, this interview was really cringe-inducing, but you can't deny the fact that they love each other. It is actually really kind of creepy, though. Can you imagine if someone was, like, talking to us two about our podcast? Like, what do you like about each other? Oh, Mark treads where angels fear to go. (laughs) Really cringe. So um, Julie was quoted in the same interview saying it was nothing more than platonic to begin with. We were both in relationships. We both had young children. But she added there was an inevitability about us. It was one of those things. There was no point fighting against it. And within a year, friendship had blossomed into romance. Tony said of those early days, I found it quite terrifying. I don't mind admitting I shed more than a few tears along the way. The last people I wanted to upset and hurt were my children, to lose their love and respect. He went on, the point came in 1989 when I was in Egypt and determined to use the time to get away from Julie to think. I was travelling the country and at every hotel I went to there was a message from Julie Mayer at the BBC. She just wouldn't take no for an answer. It was like being dragged into a vortex I was hanging on by my fingernails. When I arrived back in Leicester I'd made up my mind that it was over and then I saw her. The John Lennon track How was playing. How can I go forward when I don't know which way I'm facing? I asked her to marry me over a message from my computer to hers. He proposed by email. That's not good. To be fair, I'm guessing they both worked at the BBC at this time, so it would have been the early 90s, and I don't think we really had email then, so I'm guessing it was some kind of in-house communication device. I don't know. It's still not down on one knee, though, is it? That's... I don't like this. That's funny because my immediate thought was just that, no, no, technologically it may have been this way and Bethan's like, yeah, romantically that's not good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What I love on this podcast as well, because we go back in time, uh, not intentionally, but obviously we look at historic cases and I love it when we kind of talk about technology and pagers and fax machines like Jill Dando, uh, that case where she was getting paper for for her fax machine. That's just so random. Um, The couple got married a few years later in 1994 at Leicester's Great Meeting Unitarian Chapel. Julie arrived on the arm of her now teenage son Simon and Tony chose his son Paul as best man. Around this time Julie's career in local radio was really starting to take off and she was a regular contributor to local and now national radio programming and her TV appearances included Children in Need and The Heat is On for BBC One. Together with Tony, she won several awards, ranging from the promotion of science to raising awareness of disabilities. They were also recognised with a special mention in the Queen Mother's Birthday Awards for an anti-litter campaign they were spearheading at the time. Julie reflected on their working relationship. She said, working together has worked in our favour. We're a double act. We bounce off each other. I know I can be a bit ditzy, but Tony keeps me on the straight and narrow. Julie's radio assignments led to her having a reputation as a bit of a daredevil. She took part in a number of wild activities including wing walking and all of this was regaled to their listeners. 
Always happy to strike a provocative pose for the local newspapers, Julie certainly knew how to raise her profile, and in turn the profile of Tony. She even appeared in a naughty but nice children in need calendar. Additionally, in various photo shoots to promote her and her husband's radio show, she appeared naked in a giant golf bag, naked in a tin bath, and naked as Lady Godiva with a whip. Hashtag Mark's advertising for the Seeing Red podcast coming up. Whilst they presented various radio shows together, Julie recorded documentaries for BBC Radio 4 and the World Service, and Tony continued to work on additional shows for BBC Leicester. For 20 years, life appeared to be treating the couple well. Although they had never broken into mainstream media, they had a comfortable life and were fated as local celebrities in the Midlands, asked to open various fates and shops in the region, and they did mix with local celebrity friends at their home, which they called Knob Hall. Incredible. Things came crashing down, however, when in December 2015, they were arrested on suspicion of indecently assaulting a number of underage boys and outraging public decency. At the time, the pair were taken off air, and the BBC issued a statement explaining that they had decided to step down from their radio show for the foreseeable future for personal reasons. Of course, most people presume this meant they were having marital problems. However, in April 2016, reports began to surface in the media detailing the allegations. Now, normally, I would talk a lot about the allegations, uh, the alleged abuse at this point, but I'm actually going to jump straight into the trial because there's been some great coverage of that and I'm going to detail really what they got up to and the outcome of that as we go through it. So the trial was set for the 19th of May in 2017, uh, probably a year and a half after they were first arrested. The trial lasted for three weeks and it took place at Warwick Crown Court. Opening the case on day one against the pair, Miranda Moore QC said the couple had sex in the open, knowing and taking delight in the fact that young lads were watching and they encouraged these young lads to view the sexual encounters. Some of the couple's victims claimed Julie was variously dressed in a Flasher's Mac trench coat, white high heels, stockings, suspenders and a split skirt at the time of the offences near Atherston in Warwickshire. So, I mean, if you're trying to get a mental image, perhaps imagine Bethan on a Friday night when she goes to the pub. Fuck you, Mark. <laughs> I do not want to be linked with this fucking woman. <laughs> <laughs> Bethan can see the script and she she can see that that wasn't in the script. So she's like, what the fuck are you saying? Um, I, I take it back. Bethan doesn't normally uh, wear white high heels. It's red, but the rest of it fits. <laughs> so the QC went on to say the boys at the time were all too young by law to be participants in any sort of sexual activity. Julie would encourage one of the boys at a time to engage in sexual activity. Julie was doing the activity, but Tony was there. He was there to act as a lookout or a minder for Julie. The court heard the activity involved seven boys aged about 14 and one aged 11. During her opening statement, Miranda Moore QC said two tranches of victims emerged after a complainant went on a child protection course and realised what had taken place in the 1990s was not right and not appropriate and he subsequently reported what had happened to the police. One victim came forward after hearing a news report about two presenters being charged with offences dating back to the 1990s. The man then researched details of the couple and recognised Julie as being the woman who had had a sexual encounter with him when he was 14. 
This guy's name is Darren Cunningham and he has subsequently waived his right to anonymity, hence the fact that we can name him in this episode. And he's quite happy to have his name out there. He sold his story uh, once a couple had been... uh, sent to prison and he has done interviews as well so I have looked at one of the interviews that he did and he described his encounter with Tony and Julie at the age of 14. He said he was riding his bike around the local park with a group of friends one Saturday in 1992 when one of them spotted a woman with no underwear on. He said he asked his friend how do you know that she's got no underwear on and the friend replied that the woman had a skirt on with a high split up the side. The boys went over to look and Darren said it was clear that she was not wearing any knickers as there was no knicker line visible. He said she could clearly see the boys looking at her and pointing and she brazenly looked back and giggled at them. At this point Tony and Julie walked into the bushes and beckoned the children to follow. Tony and Julie began performing sex acts on each other in full view of the group of boys. She asked them if there was anywhere more private and Darren said he told them there was a wood nearby. Tony and Julie proceeded to the wood and the children followed. Darren then described how the couple had full sex in front of him and his friends. He said we were just stood there watching, shocked and surprised. He said there was no internet back then and the boys had never seen anything like it before. He went on to describe how the couple invited him and his friends back to the same spot the following Saturday to watch and how they all went along. He said at the end of that time, Julie said to him, if you come back next time, you can have a play. We'll come on to it a bit more as we go through uh, the kind of transcripts of the trial and what the judge said when he summed up. But it really does seem to me that Julie was the one that led this and she was the one that really encouraged everything to happen. Tony was a a bystander, somebody that, that did partake a little bit, but it was mostly Julie that spearheaded it. Darren said they went back the following week and sure enough, there was Julie and Tony in the same wooded area. He said they beckoned his friend over first. However, the boy came back after a few minutes and said that the husband had a camera and he was scared that he was being filmed. Darren said he then went over and saw Julie sat on the ground on a coat. He said she was wearing stockings and suspenders and that she asked him to sit down next to her. He said he told Julie that he didn't want to do anything as he could see her husband in the distance with a camera. At this point, Darren said Julie told her husband to take a walk and when he was out of sight, she undid his trousers and began to masturbate him. Darren said she was very dominant with him, instructing him on what she wanted him to do to her. Darren was questioned in the dock for an hour and a half, and the defence accused him of lying. They said that the couple didn't deny that this had taken place, but the couple's defence was that it had taken place not in 1992, but some years later, which would have meant that Darren would have been well over the age of consent. However, Darren said that he knew the exact year and the exact date, really, of the offence because his friend's mother had died on the following Thursday after the first meeting on that Saturday. Another alleged victim said that he'd had sex with Julie on up to 15 occasions. The court heard that both defendants denied any wrongdoing in the police interviews, so they stuck to their story and said, we're not denying it necessarily, but it didn't happen when they're saying it happened. One victim told how Julie took his virginity in the woods whilst her husband kept watch with a camera. Another victim claimed that Julie performed a sex act on him after she lifted her skirt and said, do you want to have a play with this? In court, Julie admitted that she and her husband had had sex in the woods from time to time in order to spice up their sex life. But she claimed if we heard anybody coming, we'd stop. We wouldn't openly display ourselves. 
During her police interviews, Julie said she had got a bit frisky on the odd occasion and engaged in what she called outdoor hanky-panky with her husband, purely, as I said, to spice up their sex life. The trial was told that her husband told officers he had not had sex with his wife in view of the boys and he had never acted as a lookout. At the end of day one, Tony denied 10 charges of indecent assault, whilst Julie denied 12 charges of indecent assault. Together, they both denied five counts of outraging public decency. Day two of the trial saw a second witness give evidence uh, via video link, and he said that he'd seen the couple engaging in sexual activity in the wooded area again in 1992, when he was a teenager and he was encouraged to get involved. There were a number of witnesses that said very similar things to the other two witnesses, that Julie had taken their virginity, that they had seen her sunbathing in the park, that she'd beckoned them over and performed various sexual activities with them or on them. One of the victims said that he'd had sex with Julie on the living room floor of her home, and basically that happened from the ages of 14 to 18. Um, He said it happened sporadically around sort of 10, 12 or 15 occasions. He would see her in the park occasionally and they would arrange to meet. He only discovered the couple's names a couple of years later while he was channel hopping on the radio. The man said it was probably about a year or two later. While it was going on, I was listening to the radio one night and I recognised their voices, co-presenting an evening programme. You could play me a recording of 10 BBC presenters and I would be able to tell you straight away which one was them. The man told officers, I took part in child protection training and it brought up incidents that happened to me over four years from when I was 14 to when I was 18 when I engaged in sexual intercourse with this couple. I'd never told a soul. I was sitting there having a conversation with myself. Is this the day that I tell someone? Something that I always think with things like this is just how brave it is for those victims to actually, this many years later, actually come out and and give evidence at a trial as well. It's... It must be just absolutely harrowing, but so brave of them to do so. Absolutely. And I'm going to sort of just kind of touch on the effects of this kind of abuse and the impact it can have, particularly in adulthood, uh, towards the end of today's episode, because it certainly is brave and it can have far reaching consequences beyond anything anyone can imagine at the time. Also with Darren, the witness who waived his right to anonymity, he was due to get married, I think, four weeks after he realised that he had been abused and that this was a couple in question. And he was really kind of debating, do I need this right now? Do I need to go to the police and tell them that I'm also a victim when I've got a wedding in four weeks' time? But with the support of his then fiance, he did go to the police and formed part of the prosecution's case. Another victim said that he was rejected by the couple years later when he saw them in a garden centre. I think he was around 18 at this time and he had attempted to get back in touch with them. However, he said that he was probably too old at this time for them. Another victim said that he had sent messages to Julie years after the alleged abuse when he was drunk, depressed or down. He told Warwick Crown Court, I kept going back when the abuse was happening. I didn't really want to do that. Afterwards, I felt guilty. It was terrible. Julie's barrister, David Hislop, claimed the accuser became angry because the radio star rejected his advances when he contacted her on Facebook and by email. The complainant replied, yeah, I was probably too old. The man also denied the barrister's claims that he had become wholly obsessed with Julie and that he reported the couple to police only after his heartfelt messages were ignored. The man replied, I had occasionally become obsessed when I was drunk, depressed or down. When I look back on it now, it was just when I was craving sex. It's probably why you're not meant to have sex with underage kids, isn't it? Because that is what it does to them. 
Sentencing, Judge Andrew Lockhart QC said it was clear they could not resist the sexual thrill of abusing young boys. He said, I find that you both found that your sex life would be made more exciting by engaging with young lads in the park and the woods near to your home. You, Julie Wadsworth, loved that young boys were attracted to you as an older woman. You, Tony Wadsworth, did all you could to encourage her and facilitate the events that the jury have heard about. Julie broke down and she was convicted by majority 10-2 verdict of nine indecent assaults and five counts of outraging public decency. But she was found not guilty of two counts of indecent assault. In a rare show of emotion during their lengthy trial, she repeatedly gulped, swayed in the dock and wiped away tears with a black tissue. Now, I think you will have something to say about that, Bethan, because that's quite glamorous, isn't it? Yeah, where do you get black tissues from? I want some. I've got, um, currently, flamingo tissues when I have a bit of a cold. That's pretty cool because that's bright, that's going to cheer you up. But I think black's great. Great colour if you're being sentenced to prison. Perhaps a great colour at a funeral. So, yeah, well done her. Her husband, who acted as the lookout during the sexual activity involving his wife, um, was found guilty of the same charges, also by majority verdicts. However, he showed little emotion and simply handed his mobile phone to his solicitor and he hugged his weeping wife as they stood together in the dock. Senior Crown Prosecutor David Roos of the CPS said, Tony and Julie Wadsworth lived double lives. In their public and professional lives, they were a couple who came across as caring, warm and respectable. However, in their private lives, they preyed on young, impressionable victims for their own sexual gratification. I would like to thank the victims for their courage during this difficult and sensitive prosecution. They have helped to bring these two sexual predators to justice. Mitigating for Julie after her conviction, David Hislop QC said, At 60 years of age, hers has been a tragic fall from grace. A period of incarceration will be made even more difficult for her, knowing the stigma attached to her convictions will carry on forever. Tony Wadsworth's lawyer, Michelle Clark, said the hardest thing for him would be being separated from his wife. Detective Sergeant Reese Bauer from Warwickshire Police said, These two individuals gave no thought to the impact their actions were having on the young boys they abused. They were only concerned with their own gratification. And the NSPCC also said the Wadsworth's behaviour has been exposed for what it is, child sexual abuse. Julie Wadsworth's fatuous claim in court that she was a victim in this case is insulting. The true victims were young boys who were repeatedly encouraged to engage in illegal sexual activity. A BBC spokesman said very little on this case, but they did say that the Wadsworths were last on air in December 2015 and no longer work for the corporation. Darren's friends, so Darren Cunningham who waived his right to anonymity, um, Darren's friends have said that they wished it had happened to them. He said people seem to have a different attitude to men. He said you don't realise it is damaging at the time. He said the NSPCC say their behaviour was child sexual abuse and Darren always believed from that day it was only him and his friends that were being abused. However, when he heard the media reports that the couple had been arrested, he realised that there were more victims and the youngest being 11 years of age, the same age as his stepson at the time. So you might think, why did Darren waive his right to anonymity? I mean, I suppose you could say that it meant that he could sell his story and get some money. But he did say that since he did that, he'd had a couple of messages on Facebook from victims of abuse that had come forward and said, your case has inspired me to come forward as well. Um, so I think it was it was a worthy thing to do. So I 
mentioned the report that I looked at and it does say in that report, it was an American report, but it was really interesting. So somebody called Jody Brintzer, who is the assistant director of a child abuse program, said sexual abuse is a horribly sensitive issue for boys, particularly because boys are taught not to talk about their feelings and aren't able to feel vulnerable. Adolescence is a time when boys are beginning to explore their own sexuality. They may feel insecure or perhaps even confused about what's happening to their bodies. This issue is particularly difficult for victims, experts say, because their bodies may have physiologically responded to the abuse. Sometimes the abuser uses that against them, implying that they wanted or enjoyed the contact. This then only adds to the victim's guilt and shame. What kids need to understand is that their bodies respond naturally. That does not mean that they were willing participants and it doesn't mean that they enjoyed it. Children may be worried about their complicity in the abuse or even have questions around their own sexuality. This may cause them to withdraw emotionally or even develop a fear of sex. But many others do go in the opposite direction. To counter their uncomfortable feelings, they could start acting out. They could engage in dangerous daredevil behaviour or date loads of different women to prove their manhood. Rough and tumble behaviour can be a way to fend off the possibility of another abuser seeing them as a target. It can also be part of a suicidal high-risk lifestyle that some victims will maintain because they feel so bad about what happened. They're depressed, they don't really care whether they live or die. Victims also worry as they grow older that they too will become sexual offenders. That can happen but experts say the vast majority of boys who are abused do not become paedophiles. There's a myth and a misperception that if you're abused, you're going to abuse somebody else. It's sometimes called the vampire syndrome. If you're bit, you're going to go out and bite others. More common among adult victims are problems such as depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, substance abuse problems and failed relationships. The problems people experience vary and depend on factors such as family dynamics and the amount of support offered to the victim after he exposes a secret. There is a general rule that the longer these issues go before they are uncovered, the harder it is for the person to deal with. But also it depends on how it is uncovered and whether or not the abuser takes responsibility. Psychological damage from abuse may be offset by support the victim gets afterwards and his natural level of resiliency. It is possible for men who have been sexually abused to heal on their own and go on to live productive lives, experts say. The process can be hastened, however, with professional help, especially if the whole family gets counselling. So I thought it was really important just to cover off some of those details in that report. And there are so many reports out there in different countries by different experts that all say abuse of adolescent boys can have far-reaching consequences in adulthood. For example, as we discussed there, depression, suicide, drug abuse, difficulty forming relationships in later life. So the Wadsworths were sentenced to five years in prison each. They've done about a year and a half so far, so they will be out of prison next year. Um, What do you think about the sentence? Reach out to us on social media and let us know. I think personally, it's probably just about acceptable. Five years. What do you think, Bethan? I do think it is acceptable if they were to do the full five years. That would be my issue is so often um, the actual sentence isn't completed. So that would be my only kind of thinking around that. I do think it's a really interesting point that some of the victims didn't realise until this came out that they had also been the victim of sexual abuse. It's so easy to look at cases and think, oh, you know, he's a young teenage boy and she's a hot older woman who wouldn't want that. 
well actually it is abuse and they are still underage so it's a really interesting one that it's not talked about and it's not talked about so much that the bit of the actual victims don't realize that they've been abused as well until this happens i think it's really good as well that that guy that darren um decided actually did decide to waive his right to anonymity especially with so so much else going on in his life he will have helped so many more people yep completely agree with everything you've said if you are on instagram twitter or facebook please have a look because betham will have put a post up by now um promoting this episode and there'll be some pictures on there of julie in particular um so when i was asking betham to put the photos on i sent her a bit of a short list and i said i want mug shots and a slut shot so you'll see you'll see what i mean when you have a look but it's really interesting so yeah she was a hot older woman she was an absolute milf but she should have been doing what she was doing the filthy fucking bitch and on that note we'll see you next week bye bye Hi Angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.